0: Our text this morning ought to be a familiar one. There it is. People move my pulpit and the stuff gets moved inside of it. And then sometimes it disappears and then reappears. And there's, look, This pulpit has a whole life of its own that I know nothing about. Uh, but from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, as I said, familiar ground to us here in this congregation, as I've referenced this verse many times. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Lord, we ask that you would make your book live for us this morning, and that you would show us yourself in your word, and that you would show us ourselves. That as the word of God goes forth in power, animated by the Holy Spirit, which only you can do and which we are expecting you to do here, that things happen. Hearts are changed. Minds are changed. The blind see and the deaf have their ears opened to spiritual things. Do that among us, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's Christmas hymn, is uh, What Child Is This? And it was written by William Chatterton Dix in around the year 1865. The tune is much older, the tune is called Greensleeves, and it was composed in the 1500s as a love song from a suitor to his beloved Lady Greensleeves. And this song, this hymn, poses three questions to us this morning. Two of them are overt, And are actually printed for us in the text of the hymn. The last one is implied. And these three questions will frame our discussions this morning. And the first question comes to us right off the bat in the first verse with the question, What child is this? What child is this? And and this is, in a way, a question that faced Jesus repeatedly throughout his ministry. And and we find it sprinkled in one way or another throughout the Gospels, as they, uh, at various points, describe the earthly ministry of Christ. The, The people around Jesus Christ, both friend and foe, asked this question often. Who is he who forgives sins? They said with great indignation. "'Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him?' they said with trembling and fear and perplexity. "'Who are you? "'Are you the Christ?' said his enemies to him at trial. "'Are you the king of the Jews?' said a pagan Roman ruler. "'Are you the son of God then? "'Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed?' Tell us plainly, who are you? It is a question of great importance, perhaps a question of the highest importance. And it's a question that has not gone away, you see. If Jesus was a mere human being, as many throughout history have tried to assert, or worse, a false prophet, or a wandering wise man and sage and teacher... Then you are free, if that's who he is, to either accept or ignore his teachings and his advice as you see fit, as you would ignore or accept the teaching of any wise human being down through history. In other words, you are able to stand in judgment of him. And if he passes your muster, if if you decide he's someone that you ought to listen to, well then you could listen. But if you don't think he is, then you could ignore him. And and if he's only human, then there's something else that we have to grapple with, something really important. It's common today for skeptics to give words of respect to Jesus where his moral teaching is concerned but then to turn around in the next breath and to claim that either early Christians only started calling him God and the son of God out of ignorance and superstition and misplaced adoration and zeal. Or even worse, they will say, well, Jesus actually did make certain claims about himself that just weren't true. But he's still a great moral teacher, they'll say. He said a bunch of things that just weren't right. He had a self-conception that that probably was off in a way, but but he was a great moral teacher. And my purpose today is to rub your nose in certain facts about Jesus. C.S. Lewis decisively and admirably dealt with this argument in several places. He dealt with it briefly in mere Christianity, but perhaps the place where he dealt with it most thoroughly was in an essay called, What Are We to Make? of Christ. And I invite you to listen to this. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's not worth shortening down because it is so good. And so please just listen. Lewis says, I want to rather stress the point that the appalling claim which this man seems to be making is not merely made at one moment in his career. There is, of course, the one moment which led to his execution, the moment at which the high priest said to him, who are you? I am the anointed, the son of the uncreated God, and you shall see me appearing at the end of all history as the judge of the universe. But that claim, in fact, does not rest on this one dramatic moment. When you look at his conversation, you will find this sort of claim running through the whole thing. For instance, he went about saying to people, I forgive your sins. Now, it is quite natural for a man to forgive something you do to him, Thus, if somebody cheats me out of five pounds, it's quite possible and reasonable for me to say, well, I forgive him and we will say no more about it. But what on earth would you say if somebody had done you out of five pounds and I said, that is all right, I forgive him. Then there is the curious thing which seems to slip out almost by accident. On one occasion, this man is sitting looking down on Jerusalem from the hill above it and suddenly in comes an extraordinary remark. I keep on sending you prophets and wise men. Nobody comments on it. And yet quite suddenly, almost incidentally, he is claiming to be the power that all through the centuries is sending wise men and leaders into the world. Here is another curious remark. In almost every religion, there are unpleasant observances like fasting. This man suddenly remarks one day, no one needs to fast while I'm here. Who is this man who remarks, That his mere presence suspends all normal rules? Who is the person who can suddenly tell the school that they can have a half holiday? Sometimes the statements put forward the assumption that he, the speaker, is completely without sin or fault. This is always his attitude. You, to whom I am talking, are all sinners. But he never remotely suggests that this same reproach can be brought against him. He says again, I am begotten of the one God, and before Abraham was, I am. And you must remember that the words I am were in Hebrew, the name of God, which must not be spoken by any human being, the name which it was death to utter. Well, that is the other side. On the one side, clear, definite moral teaching. On the other, claims which, if not true, are those of a megalomaniac, compared with whom Hitler was the most sane and humble of men. There is no halfway house, and there is no parallel in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, Are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, My son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, Are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, Are you Allah? He would have first have rent his clothes and then cut your head off. If you ask Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would have probably replied, remarks that are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. If you think you are a poached egg when you are looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane. But if you think you are God, there is no chance for you. We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild disapproval. We, we need to have that square in front of us when we talk to people about Jesus. Uh, the, rubbing our nose in the facts about Christ and about who He is will reproduce one of the three results that Lewis talked about. Either hatred or terror or adoration. And the response that grips you personally is a direct result of what's actually going on In your heart. If you are still lost in your sins and doggedly determined to stay lost in your sins, then being confronted with the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ will almost always cause hatred to rise within you. For here in Him is the great cosmic interferer. He is the one who is the great lawgiver, and He decides what's right and what's wrong not you, and he allows you the self-deception for a little while of standing in judgment of him, and you may, and you may do that. You may either accept him and his claim on your life, or you may reject him and his claim on your life. That's up to you, but that freedom comes with an expiration date. The the moment you breathe your last breath, you have to accept the consequences of your choice. And then you will find that the roles are completely reversed. No longer do you stand in judgment of him. Now it's his turn. He stands in judgment of you. If your response is terror instead of hatred, there might be some hope for you. It depends on what you do with your terror. If your response to the terror is uh, that there might be some, uh, some place where you can go and run and hide and avoid the Lord Jesus Christ at every cost, um, then, then you're in trouble, right? And we see this in, in Revelation and, and chapter 6 and verses 15 through 17. We see here comes the lamb and he's unavoidable now. And men and women see him, and they're not happy. And it says in in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 17 that they cry out for the rocks and the hills and the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the Lamb and from his wrath. So there's a terror that's not doing anybody any good. They're running away from the source of their terror. But if your response is, I am filled with sin. Therefore, instead of fleeing away from the Lord Jesus Christ, the only thing to do is to flee towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a different story. The one way leads you running towards your sin and away from the Lord Jesus. The other way leaves you running towards Jesus and away from your sin. And the second way is much To be preferred. For Jesus, we are assured, is filled with mercy and compassion and forgiveness and healing for sinners who come to him seeking aid. I think that the story that it has most profited me to meditate on in all the scriptures is that little episode where Jesus is crucified between two thieves. And if you read the story carefully, you see that both of them began by mocking Jesus. But something happens along the way. And one of them suddenly realizes, I'm wrong. The other one keeps going, keeps heaping abuse on him. But one man says, hey, stop it. We deserve to be here. We're we're here as just punishment for what we did. But this man, he didn't do anything wrong. You, You need to be quiet. He doesn't deserve this. We do. He doesn't. And then he turned to Jesus and said, without even really understanding what he was asking or who it was he was talking to, said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, we don't even know what that meant. To that man, remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus looks at him full of mercy and compassion and says to the man who had been verbally abusing him just moments before, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise today. You know, the old preachers of the first great awakening, the the Wesleys and the Whitfields and the Daniel Rowlands and the Jonathan Edwards of the world, would actually preach the law and the thunderings and condemnations of the law before they ever preached the gospel. And they did that on purpose because what they were trying to do is to do what only the law of God can do when the Spirit of God comes, that is to awaken the sinner and to show them their terrible situation and their terrible need and induce them to fear for them for themselves and for their souls. And so they would be very, very clear. They would go for perhaps a week of preaching several times a day to great crowds, the the thunderings of the law. You stand condemned by a holy God. Here are the things he says not to do, and here are the things you're all doing all the time. You are in trouble. And they would do that on purpose because when the gospel was presented after that, people saw it as the solution to their biggest problem. They saw it as the answer to that which was terrifying and troubling their conscience, to that which was keeping them awake at night. When you know in your bones, I am loathsome, I am vile, and I am guilty. Then the gospel, which promises forgiveness, and healing and cleansing is the best news you've ever heard in your life. The law shows sinners their sin, it shows them their peril, and it shows them their need. It gets past their self-justifications that men and women put forth to justify themselves and it says you're guilty. You stand condemned by your own conscience and you're without excuse. The law lays a man or a woman low. And then the preacher points to Jesus and the grace that's offered freely to sinners. You know, sometimes when you, usually, when you go to a jeweler to look at diamonds, the jeweler will bring out the diamonds and will lay a cloth or some other black background before he or she puts the diamonds on it. And and they do that because the the stones shine much more brilliantly against that black background. Well, loved ones, the law of God, the moral law of God is the black cloth and the gospel is the diamonds. And of course, if you know Jesus and the salvation that he brings, then your response will be the third one that Lewis mentions, which is adoration and love. If he be God and died for me, said Gypsy Smith, nothing he would ask of me is too great. Nothing that Jesus could ever ask of you is too much for the one who saved your soul. And to show your love by grateful and gracious service isn't a burden, it's actually your highest joy. What child is this? That's the first question. This, this is Christ the king whom shepherds guard and angels sing, haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. The second question is also profound. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? If he is a king and not just a king, but the king. If he is God, the son of God, why are his earthly circumstances so impoverished? I mean, think about it. We, we clean things up today a lot, but he was born in a place that sheltered animals. I don't know how many of you have ever hung around farms. Animals are not clean. They don't smell good. And the places where they live and hang out Smell worse than the other places in the farm. It, so, the, the, the shelter that sheltered him, the, the stable, was a place of dust. It was a place of hay and straw. It was a place of piss and dung. And his crib was a manger. Now, what is a manger? Well, the word comes to us into English from the French after the Norman conquest of 1066 when France invaded, occupied, and settled England, and they imposed an alien rule and an alien tongue on the English people. And the word manger comes from the French word manger, which means to eat or to chew. And so a manger was a feed trough. Now, I have spent quite a a lot of time among cattle farmers and at cattle confinement operations in Nebraska. And cows are not known for their table manners. They are not polite eaters. They actually, cows drool a lot when they eat, and it gets all over the feed trough. It sticks to everything, it sticks to their nose, it sticks to the sides of the feed trough, and they don't care, they just bury their faces in there and root around and get some more out. And so Jesus is laid in a feed trough. Jesus' mother was a teenage peasant, his father figure, was not his baby daddy. The place where Mary gave birth was filthy and disgusting, and so was his first crib. The family immediately has to flee to a foreign country to escape the rage of a murderous king. As he's growing up, he grows up poor. He grows up having to work hard with his hands. He knew what it was to sweat in the sun. He knew what it was to have a tired back. He knew what it was to have calluses on his hands. He knew what it was to have all of his muscles ache at the end of a long day. And in the midst of that, people whispered about his parentage behind his back. When he finally reaches adulthood and begins his ministry, his work, his own family thinks he's completely crazy. His brothers don't believe in him. One doesn't believe in him until after he's resurrected, apparently, and appears to him resurrected. When he lived in his last three years of life, he was homeless. He often went without sleep. He was constantly misunderstood. He was constantly attacked. He was constantly vilified. He was betrayed by one friend and abandoned by all the rest. He was falsely accused. He was unlawfully tried. He was wrongly convicted. He was tortured. He was executed by the most barbaric means available at the time. And when they nailed him on that cross, in all likelihood, he hung naked while his enemies gloated at him and continued to abuse him. And when he finally got the release that death brings, all they could do with his body was lay it in a borrowed tomb. Kings live lives of wealth and privilege. They're insulated from People who don't look right and who don't smell right and who don't talk right and who aren't properly educated. Kings live in luxurious castles. Kings eat the finest food and drink the finest wines. They wear the most luxurious clothes. Kings demand to be honored and catered to and bowed down to. Not this king. This king was born homeless, and he died penniless and in disgrace. This king consciously and consistently rejected every single thing that earthly rulers look to and rely on and esteem highly. Why? Well, Jesus took the form of a slave so that he might drink the bitterest dregs of human experience. Jesus lived this way so that he might know firsthand what your life is like so that he might know all about the bitter bitter things that have befallen you whatever horrible sins have been inflicted upon you by other people however you've been lied to humiliated cheated on rejected betrayed you can go to Jesus You can go to the king and hear him say, I know, child. I know about your pain and suffering. I suffered something just like it. I know, child. I suffered. Has your body been shamefully violated? Jesus lay naked while nails pierced his hands and his feet. And then he was pierced through with a spear. His body was shamefully violated and humiliatingly violated too Have you been betrayed and cheated upon Have the people who vowed to love you and cherish you and protect you not only failed in their duties but even profited from their betrayal Jesus knows He was betrayed too He he was abandoned for 40 pieces of silver Have you been hated Have you been unfairly criticized and attacked? Have you been accused of evil while you're trying to do good? Have you been despised and rejected by men? Jesus knows. He he stood and he listened as his own people shouted, crucify him. Only a few days after they were shouting, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Will you die too young? Jesus died at 33 in the prime of his life. Are you stuck in singleness without a life partner? Jesus did too. Are you poor? Do You wonder how you're going to pay your bills next month or even where you will sleep? Jesus knows. Jesus had to do a miracle in order to pay his taxes. And uh, he said he had nowhere to lay his head. You might need a miracle to pay your taxes too, the way things are going. Have you been criticized? Jesus was savagely and relentlessly criticized. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather one who has been tempted and tried in all ways as we are. This king suffers with us, and this king suffers for us. You know, one, one of my favorite books um, I bought on accident in 1996, it's a fiction book, historical fiction, by a guy named Stephen Lawhead, who's a Christian, and it's called Byzantium. And it's the story set in the ninth century in Ireland, initially, of this little monk named Aidan who is chosen with 11 others to carry what we now know today as the Book of Kells, which was a, a New Testament uh, in a very ornate form with a silver cover and beautiful, um, beautiful manuscript, the illuminated manuscript. And he, he's chosen, these 12 are chosen, to take this Book of Kells as a gift to the emperor of the known world there, the Christian world at Byzantium, which today is called Istanbul in Turkey. And so they're on this great multi-year trip to go visit the emperor. And as they approach the coast of France, they're taken prisoner by Vikings. And most of them are killed right there on the spot or they drown. And Aidan survives. And he's sort of kept as a slave by one of these Vikings, a man named Gunnar. And he's taken back to Sweden and they discover that he's useful because he has knowledge that they don't have access to. And they say, here's what we want. You're gonna help us. We're gonna go down and sack this great big city called Miklagard. And so they head down through Russia and Ukraine and into the Black Sea and they end up uh, at Byzantium. That's what the, and the, he didn't realize they were talking about Byzantium. And it's so big and so powerful and so impressive and all walled off and everything they realize There's no way that, you know, 50 of us can take this place. So they end up actually working for the emperor as mercenaries. And then they're kidnapped by Arabs. And they end up as slaves. And they get free. And along this way, Aidan loses his faith. And at the end, he makes it back to Ireland. And his faith is in a complete shambles. He doesn't believe in God anymore. Because God, if he exists, has let him down constantly everything he didn't want to happen to him has happened to him and so there he is this bitter bitter man on back in his monastery in ireland getting ready to renounce the faith and be branded a heretic and then one day the vikings show up again and it's the same people that kidnapped him only this time they come in peace and they want to be baptized and they want somebody to be brought to them to plant a church and teach them to become Christians. And I pick up at a particular moment in the story. Gunnar was quiet for a moment, gazing at the little stone chapel. The people of Scania pray to many gods who neither hear nor care, Gunnar said. But I remember the day you told me about Jesu, who came to live among the fisher folk, and was nailed to a tree by the Scalds and the Romans and hung up to die. And I remember thinking, this hanging God is unlike any of the others. This God suffers too, just like his people. I remember also that you told me that he was a God of love and not revenge. So that anyone who calls on his name can join him in his great feasting hall. I ask you now, does Odin do this for those who worship him? Does Thor suffer with us? This is the great glory of our faith, I murmured, thinking of Ruad's words to me, but changing them to reflect Gunnar's sentiment that Christ suffers with us and through his suffering draws us near to himself. Just so, agreed Gunnar eagerly. You are a wise man, Aiden. I knew you would understand. This is most important, I think. You find this comforting? Yeah, he said. Do you remember when the mine overseer was going to kill us? There we were, our bodies were broken, our skins blackened by the sun. How hot it was, remember? Surely it is not a thing a man easily forgets. Well, I was thinking this very thing. I was thinking, I am going to die today. But Jesus also died. So he knows how it is with me. And I was thinking, Would he know me when I came to him? Yes. Sitting in his hall, he would see me sail into the bay, and he would run down to meet me on the shore. He will wade into the sea and pull my boat onto the sand and welcome me as his wayfaring brother. And why will he do this? Because he too has suffered. And he knows, Aiden. He knows. And beaming, Gunnar concluded, Is that not good news? Now the third question. What child is this? Why lies he in such mean estate? How shall I respond? How shall I respond? And the third verse provides to us the answer. Let loving hearts enthrone him. The lost man or the lost woman sits on the throne of their own heart. And they say, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Do you see his glory? Do you see his humility and his goodness? Do you see him beckoning you and inviting you and imploring you to come to him? Do you hear him saying, all that come to me, I will receive and will in no wise cast out. Then come, step off the throne of your own heart and yield it to him and say to him, you sit on this throne, Jesus. It's where you belong. Give him your filth and take his purity. Give him your fears and take his peace. Give him your sorrows and take his joy. Give him your death and take his everlasting life. Place him on the throne of your heart and cry out to him what Thomas cried out to him, my Lord and my God. His love is never exhausted and his mercies are new every morning. And slavery to him is perfect freedom and joy will be yours forevermore.